0: Danny, Danny, thank you so much for having me back and it's a joy to be back and I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boyce Swallows Universe about two years ago and, um, I've never ever forgotten, uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on, um, when Trent Dalton and the world of, uh, literary fiction were were pretty strange to each other and, uh,
1: Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, Nigel Featherstone.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Danny.
1: Oh, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast and I'm so excited to chat about writing and your novel, The Bodies of Men, which was just an incredible read, honestly.
0: Oh, thank you. That's very generous of you.
1: And I read a lot of books. Yeah, I know you.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was something that described me. and We'll talk about that shortly because it was a little bit different to you know things that I've read before. Sure. Um, before we get started, though, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what The Bodies of Men is about?
0: Yeah, sure. So it's a um, World War Two story. So it's two uh, young men from Sydney. They do have a past, um, but they get sent will they end up in Egypt, uh, so we're talking 1941. Um, and in the fair opening pages, in fact, the opening paragraph, there's a, a stoush. They're on the way somewhere. There's a stoush um, and uh, the, the two men are called James and William, and they uh, really... They, they end up in a camp, but they, they end up in two very different directions. James ends up in Alexandria on the coast and William ends up in the Western Desert um, looking after a really quite odd training camp. Um, and from there they have two very different experiences of, uh, of, of the war, um, but they also um, end up very close. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And I love that because often, um, you know, in war stories, there's so much ugliness and there's so much violence and terror. And I think the balance of having, you know, love and comfort is so important in a story like that. Is that where you were heading with this one?
0: Well, funny enough, Danny, my original mission, um, well, my original mission was to actually write about different expressions of masculinity under military pressure. Um, and so I wanted to look at what does it mean to be brave that goes beyond, you know, going over, you know, just the standard, going over the, you know, the, the top of the trench and shooting people. I wanted to have, there must have been other stories. And in fact, we know there are other stories. And the, the novel actually started out, uh, I was a resident, a run in residence at um, Australian Defence. Force Academy or UNSW Canberra um, and I was there for three months and there are two statistics that I discovered there which are actually facts and they're kind of basically the same thing looking at different perspectives. One is that for every, you know, if we're talking about the Second World War, every for every man at the front line it takes nine to, to get him there. So yeah. all the supply lines and all, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I, I, rather than writing about what was happening at the front line, I actually wanted to write about what was happening to those further back, because I think there's some really interesting stories. And and I guess the other thing that almost every soldier, even contemporary soldiers will say, is that war is as much beating, beating the boredom as it is beating the enemy, because basically war is 90% absolute boredom, nothing going on whatsoever, and then 10% chaos. So I was really trying to go into those areas where um, perhaps, uh, war fiction hasn't really gone and actually asked, what would life be like if you're way back on the supply line? Not sure whether that answered your question.
1: Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just really interested, actually. I was just sitting back going, this is very interesting because what I liked, one of the things I really liked about your novel was... You know, it is an untold story, if you like. It's not a story that, you know, I've read commonly. And I think that not only going, you know, back from the men from the front line, but looking at different ideas of masculinity and, and courage and then looking at the relationship between uh, William and James. I think there's a lot of untold stories in there and they're, they're so important, aren't they?
0: They, they are. And um, it, it, is, it is very, very loosely inspired. And when I say inspired, I really do mean, you know, I read a paragraph in an amazing book called Bad Characters by Peter Stanley. And Peter Stanley, for 30 years, was the chief historian at the Australian War Memorial. And he actually was the co-winner of the um, Prime Minister's Prize, I think it was 2011, for, for this particular book, Bad Characters. And what Peter does in this book is he actually looks at, it's about the um, Australians serving in the First World War, but he actually went into all their military files where they're actually marked character bad. So this, this is all facts. And, you know, it might be from stealing, it might be sexual misdemeanours, it might be drunk and disorderly, um, uh, uh, it might be they've discovered they're Indigenous, and so Mark's a character bad. And I found this, and, and he talks about this amazing guy, called um, Chiltern in the First World War. He was actually, I think, a Scot, but he was in Melbourne in 1914, so he volunteered for the Australian Army. And he ended up uh, in Gallipoli, he survived Gallipoli, and then he ended up in Belgium. And uh, on Christmas Day, he was caught um, getting a little bit amorous with a local man. Uh, and then on Valentine's Day, and I'm not making this up, this is all in his file, on Valentine's Day, he... Uh, was found guilty uh, of cashiering, which essentially would have been sodomy, and he was sent back. The punishment was to get on the next troop ship and to go back to Australia, where he probably would have spent maybe 20 to 30 years in a military jail, and military jails are always worse than civilian jails. Uh, and uh, on the file, he never turned up uh, to the wharf to get the ship. He didn't run it. He's disappeared. So what happened to him? Did he go and find the you know his lover or did he stay in Europe or did he go back to Scotland or what happened to him? But it actually it actually says on his file, no further action. They obviously wow. decided let's yeah. just let him go. Let it go. So once I once I'd read that I thought, Oh, I think I can do something with that. But it, my story is ninety nine point nine nine percent completely different. But I just I started with the question, how could you get to the point where a man could do that and then just disappear. Mm. And that's really the inspiration for James.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that story. And, you know, as I was reading it, I thought this isn't the only story, you know, (laughs) that existed in war about James and William, but it was just, it just made me really think about all those stories that haven't been told because we focused on maybe a different narrative. So I think what you did with your story, I think it's really important.
0: Oh, thank you for saying that. Another amazing book I found when I was at ADFA was called um, We Were There. And it actually was published in the 1980s and it actually summarises three and a half thousand paper interviews with Australian servicemen who were in World War II. Um, And they do admit that there are some little constraints about this, but that's what they did. They sent out all these surveys to men who were there and um, they then filled in the survey. And of course, did they edit it? Um, what did they talk about? And it's really interesting because a lot of them talked about, you know, frankly, if you think that when we were, uh, we were serving in um, Egypt and Palestine, etc., and Syria, if you think that um, we're well, getting up to no good and just getting drunk and, never getting, you know, going to prostitutes, they said they were far too tired for a start. Mm-hmm. Um, they really, they didn't mind, they really love to have a beer, a good meal, maybe seeing a movie going to bed early and having a really good sleep (laughs) because they just got no sleep. So one guy just said, we're we're too tired. (laughs) Um, But the other thing that I learned is that Australian servicemen have always been paid really well. So particularly in First World War and Second World War, a lot of men actually served because the pay was better than the average. Mm. And secondly, um, Australians were very um, infamous for getting lots of leave, It was very easy to get leave. So you got lots of money, Mm. lots of leave. Um, but some of the surveys and some of the interviews, they said, you know, the worst thing they did is they actually, on their leave, they did an archaeological dig with the British because they were so bored. <laughs> they just went, well, let's just, go, let's just go get our brushes and go <laughs> digging in Egypt. Um, but there was a, quite a sad um, survey and where the guy said, I'm absolutely fine. You know, I, When I came home, I got married and I had kids and I became uh, you know, a small business person and I've had a very successful life. And on the back, his wife had said... He drinks, he's quite aggressive, he's very depressed, and he has massive nightmares. Wow. So isn't that amazing? And what he would say publicly, but mm. then his wife was saying obviously she got the survey and wrote a few things on the back. Wow. So um yeah, so all those stories I, I just I read heaps and I spoke to a lot of historians and uh, and then that story emerged.
1: That's really powerful because I think you know, we all present ourselves in a different way, particularly, you know, with social media now and you think just with those surveys, you know, you're reading them and then you see that one with the wife written on the back and you think how much truth now, it skews all the truths in the surveys, you know, because you think there must be some, some things that they are hiding or ways they want to present themselves.
0: Yeah, and the researchers do say in the introduction, look, you know, there are obviously these sort of um, challenges with it because who knows, maybe the, the the guys are saying we're too tired, you know, to, to get up to no good. Maybe they're getting up to terrible stuff, but they're not about to say it. So. <laughs> and it's interesting, Danny, because, you know, we're doing this interview what a few days after uh, the um, uh, revelations about, you know, a, a significant number of Afghanistan um, soldiers uh, doing terrible things. Mm. And, um, you know, lots of people saying, you know, particularly on social media, oh, this is terrible, our, our soldiers don't behave like that. And historians will actually say oh, some elements of our army have been behaving like that forever. And, you know, Peter Stanley, the historian I mentioned before, will say an army just reflects its culture. So if there's violence... In the culture, there's going to be violence in the army. Mm-hmm. So why why do we expect them to be perfect? Because well, they're yeah. not going to be perfect. Exactly. And 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 some some of the other stories that um, Peter Stanley found in his Bad Characters book was some Australian servicemen will be would be like um, um, petty criminals in civilian life. Then they'll get into the army and serve, and they'll become amazing. In that structure, with that work, they actually go quite high up the food chain, but then when they leave the army, they actually go back to petty crime. But some people actually went the other way. They're actually really great in civilian life, put them in the army, and then they did revolting things. And then when they got out, they went back to being... Moral citizens. Mm, That's all interesting,
1: isn't it? It It is fascinating. It is. And And I also think when you mentioned before about the ninety percent boredom and the ten percent chaos, like that has to wreak havoc on your psychological state, because that's not a normal way of life, is it? Or not supposed to be, I guess.
0: No. And you know, often don't know where your um company or battalion is going, or you're meant to be doing this at six AM and then you're actually doing the complete opposite three days later. You don't know what you're meant to be doing. Um, in one memoir that I, I read, there were two um, memoirs, and these were actually written like a year or two after the Second World War and published a year or two after the Second World War. And one, one guy said, look, if you, in my memoir, if you expect you, me to give you a, a rollicking, amazing, exciting tale, I just don't have it. And he said, I think I had one mate who may possibly have seen a German. In the, on the horizon. Wow. Um, and, you know, I think he also talked about he saw a flare and he, thinks, mm-hmm. he thought it might have been Australian or it could have been German. And I actually used that in Bodies of Men where there is towards the, the in the last third of the book there is a flare that goes up. Um, but in his memoir the flare went up and he saw nothing, but in the book it actually leads to something else. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I was fascinated with that whole idea of just men sitting around completely bored and, you know, um, and then the next minute, it's
1: absolutely chaos. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Now, getting back to the book, I one of the quotes I really loved and I just found it so relevant and powerful for today as well, um, just a, it's a pretty simple quote, but it says, people must care for people. It's not more complicated than that because there's questions about why people are helping particular people and why people are accepting of other people. And I just thought, how simple is that? And if we all lived by that, wouldn't it be just a nicer place? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes i know oh well you yeah, absolutely right because uh, one of the wonderful things of reading but also the wonderful things of writing is when characters just say stuff and you know it sounds really up myself because i write the line but i would never <laughs> i would never have actually uh written it without being in that story and without that character and that character is yet who is a um a, a turkish born english raised german um Jew, who's actually now an atheist, and she just she just says, well, people must care for people, and it's the beginning and the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and this gets into some tricky terrain, but um, once I, the, the, the two boys, Yetta came out fully formed, so I'm a redrafter and I did 40 drafts of that novel. Wow. And, and, and Yetta was there from, from the beginning. Um, but the boys took actually quite some time, and you would think, why would that take me, you know, I'm a gay guy who actually grew up in Sydney, so why, why would it be so difficult? Turns out that it was really difficult to make them really pulse, uh, but yet it was kind of there from the beginning and, and um, a lot of her text didn't change that much. And I, I had some assistance from a wonderful um, Yiddish uh, scholar um, and he, he, he said for him Judaism is exactly that. Caring for people, that's to him. And, and he, he lives in Canberra, and he, he just said that's for him the essence of his faith. He's just looking after people. Mm.
1: And I just, I, it really resonated with me because I thought, how simple is it? But then, you know, you look out into the world and you see that that is not happening <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> it no. is but, you know, and you think, wow, it really is that simple,
0: you know? Just, it should, just, should be. Just kindness, yeah. And, you know, it's a big thing, it's a small thing, and I'm sure, well, I know there are many times when I don't live up to it, but a a simple act of kindness is a lovely thing, isn't it? Mm, And so I I guess I was trying to, you know, I'll admit this, I don't think I've ever admitted this in any of the interviews I've done for Bodies of Men, but um, actually my original mission was to write a war novel without any war in it. Uh, oh. Turns out it's actually quite hard to do that. <laughs> well, I imagine it would be. <laughs> and in fact, a few early readers said, "Nigel, do you think there should be more war in it?"
1: <laughs> what I, in my war novel? No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no who'd have thought? Um, so I actually wanted a war novel where you, there was actually none. There was no violence whatsoever, and I, I just want. I just had this image of this beautiful courtyard in Alexandria, and these two men and Yeta um, just have a lovely time. That was my novel. That's
1: exactly how I pictured it in my <laughs> head when I was reading it. And what is it, Nigel, about forbidden love that just has the reader on the edge of their seats and and really, you know, empathizing with these characters and wanting them to have a happy ending. I mean, it's right back from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and probably before that, isn't it? But there's something special about Forbidden Love, isn't there?
0: There 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 is, and and um uh in one review of the books um it was by a gay guy a gay historian and he said thank god i never actually used any words like homosexual or gay or even camp because none of those words existed wow,
1: interesting. At, in
0: 1940 so for james and william they were you know, born in 1920 they would have literally been they would have had no no roadmaps whatsoever mm. they, they would have had these feelings you know um uh, as we all know, homosexuality in Australia was a mental illness until the mid to late 70s. So for them, they would have they would have had it would have been illegal, the medical profession would have been not on their side, the police would not have be been on their side, the army no way would be on their side, their parents were not on their side. So um they had to actually find um, uh, their their own way through that forbidden love. And and in, in a way, the novel's in threes, but the first the last third is a hint of First third is when they actually had a teenage love affair, uh, which didn't couldn't go anywhere, and then they had then war brought them together, and then that basically the novel finishes. But then there's a coda where we get a bit of a hint of what might happen. <laughs> we don't want to give too much away. <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> no, but I, I loved it, and I thought it was so important. And when you say that those words weren't even in existence or in our vocabulary. I'm just picturing how difficult it must have been to be William or James, because if you have no way to identify how, how you're feeling or who you are, that must you must not know who you are. Like it must be really complex.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely, and obviously, I mean, I was born in 1968, so the war was well and truly finished by then. But um, uh, so I was coming out in in the mid 80s, and the things that we're just talking about were basically the same. The law was against us, the medical profession was against us, our families were against us, the church was against us, and the schools were against us. So it was near impossible. So, But, of course, most people would eventually find themselves. So I, I guess I just sort of asked, sort of what if I was born much earlier and how would I have actually coped? And and I didn't want to write the sort of novel that, you know, we've read these stories, haven't we, where gay story is set in the past or is doomed, you know, they're going to end badly. Um, and I, I wasn't going to have an absolute, you know, you know they run away and in 1942 they're, um, you know, married. <laughs> uh, they're going to have more struggles. But I also wanted to give the reader, you know, a lot of hope that they um, find themselves later in life.
1: Mm, no very important i loved it i love that
0: (laughs) Well, thank you then um
1: now i wanted to talk a little bit about writing because i looked on your website and there's this amazing list of writing advice and i wanted you to unpack a few for us if you don't mind because some of it was just it were things that Either, you know, you'd, you'd thought but not been able to articulate or things that were really, really interesting. So a lot of gold there. I think actually Jack Heath pointed me towards this.
0: Thank you, Jack. Good <laughs> on you,
1: Jack. And I thought, oh, wow, this is this is wonderful. So, well, thank Jack because he was actually, you should interview Nigel. I'm like, why haven't I interviewed Nigel? I know.
0: I, know. <laughs> I love that. love that side of
1: the internet. <laughs> yeah, me too. It has a good side <laughs> as well yeah. as the dark
0: side. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Now, this is one that really speaks to my heart. It was, doubt is a loyal friend and is more helpful than you realise. Why is it helpful as well as crippling?
0: Well, I, I should say that um, uh, the the list was inspired by a list that Mary Oliver, the wonderful poet, did, and yeah. I think it's called Snape's. And it, but she does a much more poetic job of it. She almost gets all her little gems into a into a poem I think there's Snape's one and Snape's two I think Snape's a little fish but anyway so I I I thought I was actually asked to sort of do a brain dump of all my Mm. writing advice and I didn't want to write an essay so I wrote a list
1: I loved the list because an essay you know sometimes it's hard to get into and you've got to be in the right mind you know headspace to get into it but this was just it was you know just simple but it made you really think the ideas that you had they were like oh this is really interesting so I just wanted to unpack them a bit
0: yeah, um, because I've been writing for so long and and short stories and, and some poems and um, three novellas and this is my second novel and I've also been writing for the stage and, and a lot of journalism and so I just thought, you know, what are things that I know to be true, you know, because and And you know like we should put a bit of an introduction into this that these are my thinking, and somebody else can think of it in a completely different way, but you know i, I just i just do I doubt my ability in fact, I finished a play yesterday and sent it to the the theater the street theatre in canberra that i work with and and i said i i'm not I'm really not sure it's any good um and even though it's actually gone through two stages of development it's got some funding to develop it i just said and then I sent it to a director and i said i I, I don't, I'm just racked with doubt. Um, but I think that um, if we can manage doubt, it can also be um, really good because sometimes, you know, if you go on Twitter, I hear someone say, "Say, oh, I just, I just love writing. It's just my happy place. And I, I think, oh, I love writing too, but it's, it's definitely not my happy place. <laughs> uh, you know, when it's going well, it's wonderful, but when it's not going well, it's, it's, it's hell on the page. But I think that doubt, um, in essence, um, forces us to be better and better and better and better. And looking at a sentence and going, I just don't think it's really great yet and rewriting it, mm-hmm. um, which is why I did do 40 drafts of Bodies and Men because I just kept on having major um, confidence. Um, <laughs> <crushing> <laughs> it. But it, it forced me to keep going and keep going and keep going because I wanted it to be the best book I'd ever um, written. So yeah, that, that was that one. You know, doubt um can be a loyal friend. Mm,
1: I think so too. I just wanted to hear your perspective on it. Um, and I think it's actually good advice for life because, you know, you have, we've all met the person who can't learn anything and is very confident about life. And I don't think that's probably the best place to be because you can always learn and I think self-doubt even though it can be you know not a great feeling sometimes it does help you to learn or relearn or look at yourself in a way to try and make yourself better
0: yeah yeah absolutely and um you know I hope I think I'm going to be the sort of person you know on my deathbed you know when I'm 85 I think I'll go oh is that what a verb is (laughs) I think I've just worked it out and then I'll keel over (laughs) But um, uh, uh, one of the one of the highlights of my year, uh, of my 2020, which has always been a pretty horrendous year for many, uh, including me, but um, I think I've um, sailed through it a little bit better than most because I live in the country. But um, I was uh, lucky to have a residency with um, Charlotte Wood at Byron Bay with my wonderful friends, um, Robin Codwallader and Julie Keyes. And one thing that Charlotte talked about is she actually would put on, you know, uh, on a sticky note, um, something about, um, uh, optimistic curiosity, and she will say, "What will I discover today?" Mm-hmm. And and at the, the, the most, the most wonderful thing about that is that rather, because I'll go into my writing room, going, "Oh, I'm such a shit writer. I really, oh. can't, why do I do this?" You know, even over one have one of, one of the you know, biggest publishers in the world with her shit, I'll go, "Well, they probably didn't really like it though." <laughs> You know, they probably just did that just to be nice to me, which, which we know that publishing doesn't work that way. But anyway, <laughs> I'll tell myself that. So, so when I came back from that residency, I actually put the note on my writing room door, optimistic curiosity, what will I, what will I discover today? Mm. And so it's changed my thinking a little bit. So rather than walking in there and going, I'm horrible, I'll actually walk in there and going, well, it might be horrible, but I'll probably discover something good. And it might actually be, mean cutting a lot of words. It might mean cutting 70% of it. But that's good because you've got thirty percent of it. That's brilliant. Mm,
1: so. I love that. I love the what will I discover today? I'm going to do It's great, that. isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I'm going to do that every day now. It's going to be my and thing. Because because I know you've discover?
0: just done done um, now, and, and, <laughs> yes. you know, rather than going, oh my god, like what I'm writing is crap, but just rather just going, I wonder what I'll discover today. I'll discover something. So love off that. we go. Yeah.
1: Well, that's great because I've written fifty, but you know, obviously that's just above half. So I've got another half to go, what am I going to discover
0: today? (laughs) What are you going to discover? And I'll guarantee you, Zenny, that uh, you'll discover great stuff.
1: (laughs) I love that. I'm going to change my mindset too. See, I knew I'd learned so much when I asked you these questions. (laughs) And the other one I really loved was to edit a story, take it to an unfamiliar place. It could be a library or a pub or a coldest room you can find, but it's a place that needs to irritate you. And I loved this watch as you slash your work with a red pen. And I thought, that's really interesting because often, I don't know about you, but if you go to write or read, you find a comfy spot, you know, the comfy chair, you've got your tea, you have your chocolate and all that kind of stuff. But I'm thinking that this might actually work. Tell me how this works.
0: Okay. So a lot of these um, uh, things that I wrote in kindling in, in this list, um, almost all of them are ripped off somebody else. So this is ripped off something that Jenny Darling said, you know, the, the wonderful Australian um agents you know represents charlotte wood and uh um, tim winton etc um and one of the things that she says is yeah take take your manuscript to a place where you literally and edit in a place where you didn't so i'm lucky enough i do have a writing room and i do all my writing and editing um in the same room and i was struggling with bodies of men and i actually went just just do what Jenny said, I, I just heard her say, so I'm <laughs> represented by somebody else, Gabby Nair at Left Bank Literary, but I thought, I'm going to do exactly what I heard Jenny Darling say. So I live in Goulburn, uh, in, um, in the southern Tablelands of New South Wales. So I thought, I'm going to take it to the local library, and I'm going to edit it there. So I printed it out and edited it. And um, I haven't actually been to a public library for quite some time. I go to the National Library in Canberra, uh, and very noisy
1: yes very noisy especially when they have the kids thing going oh, on
0: kids thing! babies crying I, I don't so i so i get there and i think oh just going to quiet little space and <laughs> i and i've got my little got my little you know i've got my manuscript i've got my red pen and i actually had to run home and get earplugs headphones and two beanies to jam <laughs> it on my head <laughs> and then i went back but then you know yes you do have the kids group which is lovely but there's they're there you know
1: making you know. beautiful noise
0: Making beautiful noise.
1: But then even
0: the staff were sort of going, you know, Denise, have you got that Tim Winston book for Marjorie? She's coming to get it. Like shouting out from <laughs> from one side of the library to the other. And I'm just going, Oh my God, this is <laughs> But I stayed there and so I would get so cranky, like I would go, Oh Nigel, that's a terrible paragraph. That's another terrible paragraph. Turn the page. Oh, that's quite good. Oh, that's a terrible one. But then there are other times when I'd be quite engaged with the writing. Like I'd be going, oh, that's oh, so that bit of action there. that Oh, that was an interesting bit. And, and blah, blah, blah. And then I'd go, why would you do that bit there? Slash, slash, slash. And then I'd go back and fix it. And then I went back the next day. So I went, I did the whole manuscript like that. And it was about 20,000 words.
1: Wow. A, I love like, that book.
0: I had my red pen and stuff. So I think it's a great thing. Like Jenny Darling also talks about printing out your manuscript in a different font, like a crazy font that you oh. would normally use. She also talks about um, printing it out on different coloured paper, like print it out on pink, which I've done too. And so that, so when you do go to the library with your pink manuscript, <laughs> you just go, what the fuck is this <laughs> shit? You <know>? In Comic
1: Sans. <laughs> I know. You're just going,
0: why would you start a novel there, Nigel? That's ridiculous. And then you slash 30 pages and go, Well, there's your opening line. How good is that?
1: Oh, this is fantastic. I love this. I'm going to write my next 40,000 words just like this. Just
0: just do that. Take it in a place (laughs) or ask a friend or or go to a cafe. But I, 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 I really think what you were saying there before, Danny, is interesting because we often try to make ourselves really comfy, but when we're not comfortable, I think, the brain does something different. Mm. And I'm and a big I believer because I've been in lots of residencies and I'm a big believer when you go to a different space, your brain works differently.
1: Mm. I think so too. And I think not just the physical space too. I think um, yeah. if, you, if you listen to our nano journey, I had quite a tough month this month, I had you know a lot of anxiety in the last week, non-writing related, just my normal brain. Right. And um, I think when you're uncomfortable, even in your own head, what you write is different to when you're feeling good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you've got to find that sort of sweet balance between feeling comfortable so your brain can work but not so comfortable where you just, you know, because yeah, writing please. to me isn't isn't recreation. It's a, mm-hmm. a an intense vocation.
1: Oh, I love this. I love this. It's going to change my life.
0: <laughs> well, if, uh, I doubt it, but I hope so.
1: <laughs> Look, I'm being optimistic, curiously optimistic.
0: Yes. <laughs> Great.
1: Now, one last one. I like this one. I think about this all the time, if you're worried that a potential reader will think you're mad, you're probably heading in an interesting direction. How often do you think when you're writing, I can't write that, people are going to think I'm insane, or do you just do it
0: anyway? No, no. It's interesting because I spent last week um, working uh, on um, a colleague's um, new play, and we both spoke about how we both come from a, a very polite part of Sydney, we went to polite schools and we had polite family. <laughs> My family was complete in that case, but um, that we don't want to make any waves whatsoever. We just want everybody, you know. To appear Yeah, when I want everyone happy, I just want to make people laugh. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of set, you know, I have quite a, a practical bar that I just want everybody to like me all the time. I'm sure that's...
1: It's very practical.
0: Very practical, hmm. yeah. And Easy. and
1: easy yeah exactly doable yeah. totally yeah, do- achievable
0: so doable yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um no I that that's one that I really had to learn that you because in the past I'd go oh you know you know this family member will hate it or this friend will hate it or people I think that I'm you know bad or evil or wrong or something and now I don't care well I try not to care and so we've we've bodies of men like I actually had some terrible titles in fact my age actually said Nigel these titles you have are just so boring my god can't you do a better title so I sat down with my pad and I just went what it is this about it's about male bodies it's about war so it's about bodies of men oh that does two things at once. But as soon as I came up with a title, I went, oh, no, no, no. People I think that I'm perverted. And and then I just thought, oh, for God's sake, Nigel, just send that. So I send that to Gabby, my agent, and she said, oh, thank God you came up with a much better title.
1: <laughs> it um, is a great title, I must say. Yeah, anyway. Well, it only
0: took, yeah, 40 goes to get there. Yeah, but well, um, but, I, but I'm, I think I'm just learning to be, um, uh, I've just written, a have been asked to write an essay on Christos Choukas' oeuvre and, I've called the essay Fearless because I think he is a fearless writer. Mm. I think that he's the sort of writer who just says stuff and then just l- sees where it goes. And obviously done in a very intelligent, loving, nuanced, sophisticated way. Um, and so I think I'm learning more and more if, I, if I'm going into a dangerous territory, then it's probably worth doing. And also if it gives you nervous stomach, you're definitely going in the right direction. <laughs> I re- I've realised, Danny, that the, less write, the, the more that we write with our bodies and the, the less with our head, the, bit, the better the writing will be. Oh,
1: You know, that's the third conversation in a row I've had about that, about writing really? with your heart and soul and yeah. not your head. Isn't that yes. weird?
0: And, and, and really, like, you know, you're like, what if, like, you've got a chapter and you think I could do this or I could do that or I could do that. And when you get a tummy buzz, definitely go, go with the tummy buzz. Wow. As Tim mentioned, says, the spine tingles never lie.
1: I love this. This is just life advice, writing advice all packaged I into so a I,
0: I Basically, I'm a self-help writer <laughs> dressed up as a novelist.
1: Fantastic. I've had a great time.
0: <laughs> I'll be doing um, fortunes next.
1: Well, oh, I'm scared of fortunes. They terrify me. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm going to log off before then. <laughs> That's right. I'll have a. I'll get hit by a bus tomorrow.
1: It's funny. You're scared of them too. I. Whenever you know some of my friends, they like to go to the psychics or whatever, and I just it absolutely have this weird phobia about it because a I like to think I'm in charge of my own destiny. Who knows if you are, but I find that terrifying. Do you?
0: Oh, uh, well, no. Yeah, I. I. I oh. Don't want anyone going in there because it's quite messy. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't want to know what my future is either.
1: No, I often think that, too, it can be manipulated. So if someone says something's going to happen, you kind of might help make that happen.
0: Yes, exactly. Mm. That's exactly You start veering off the road into a (laughs) semi-trailer.
1: This is a novel in itself, Nigel.
0: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The semi-trailer fortune that's going to be my next novel.
1: (laughs) Now I have a question for you. I like to wrap up with this question, Nigel. Why do you write?
0: ah that's a, it's a it's a it's a goodie isn't it and i think it's something that i've always done i've actually got memories of being i think nine or ten um at school in a creative creative writing class and i just had my pad and i just wrote by hand and obviously i was running complete crap um you know me and my brothers went to build a cubby and we've discovered a bushy who took us into a dream world or something rubbish like that and um I just loved it and I remember, distinctly remember at the end of the class, people would look over and go, how many paragraphs have you written? I'd go page one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Like, have you written 12 pages? i go, yeah, how many have you written? Go, Haven't like, you? <laughs> yeah, they'd go like three lines. Um, and really I'm just still doing that. I still write by hand. I write everything oh, by I
1: love that.
0: pen on paper. Um, and I just sit down and I just... I, I just I just write. Um, do I have to do it? Sometimes I think it would be great if someone could pass a law that says there can be no more writers. <laughs> that would be great. Not, I mean, I love writers and I love artists passionately, dearly. But if someone said, like, Nigel, you can't write anymore, it would be actually a bit of a relief. <laughs> Um, i'm actually hugh grant i'm comparing myself with Hugh grant now but somebody he actually said you know if someone passed a law that there could be no more acting he'd be very relieved so anyway uh, when you advertise this podcast please don't say module one slash hugh grant for the same but um
1: giving me ideas now
0: <laughs> I, I think i do love that what if like just asking you know what if you know i'm in this pub in the moment at the moment and what if I don't know, there was a fire and I got stuck in half of it with three tradies and we spent, you know, five horrendous hours. And so then I love going into that and, you know, working on how I'd think and how I'd feel. And then then I I also just love making stuff. Like I just love making stuff. And particularly with writing, like we start with a blank screen or the blank page and then we end up with something that then, you know, a few years later, if you're lucky enough, someone like you will then ask you questions about it. I think that's um just amazing but but i also adore reading like most writers and um i just love going into those different worlds and um you know working out what it is this whole life thing is and we're all just making it up as we go along are not we none of us have any idea but
1: no no <laughs> but
0: it, you know I just read Mayflies by Andrew O'Hagan a novelist I really love and you know just a, a story about guys running a marketing you know, then are a school and then you know 30 years later one of them is dying and that's all on the back of the book simple premise but my goodness it just got me and when I when I read something as good as that I just think okay, I now I want to write something else mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that answer, and I've just loved this chat so much. We've gone in a multiple directions, and honestly, not just writing advice. Nigel's giving life advice, and my new thing: what am I going to discover tomorrow? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna tweet it out there.
0: And, and for anyone listening, please don't listen to anything I say because <laughs> my, my life is really quiet a shambles <laughs> look i think
1: all our lives are a shambles we just <laughs> don't put it all on twitter all of the time <laughs>
0: no we just put it in novels <laughs>
1: yeah, that's it that's a channel all that stuff in novel and that's why it was so great but exactly. look, thank you thank you so much for your time Nigel. i loved the book bodies of men it's an important story story that has often gone untold and it really really got me in the heart so thank you so much for writing it and thank you for this wonderful chat tonight
0: Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem.
1: Oh, thank you.